Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. Good afternoon, good evening, uh, good morning, and no matter where you are in the world, and welcome to The Intuitive Customer uh, we have my colleague here, uh, Professor Ryan Hamilton, and we're, we're going to be talking today a bit about uh, the intuitive customer. This is based on a book that Ryan and I wrote that came out October last year. And when we were having these debates about the book, we were talking all about the various different theories and um, psychology, and we, we had a really good time, and so therefore we decided that we would start to spread this. Ryan and I will be kicking around a couple of subjects uh, and Raj is going to talk about it from the academic perspective. I'm going to talk about it from the business and customer experience perspective. Uh, so, Ryan, what are we what are we talking about uh, today? So today will be the first in a three-part series. So we're going to talk about prospect theory, and we're going to talk about three different parts of prospect theory. So prospect theory is uh, the name for the theory developed by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, um, names that you've heard us mention before, and we will again. Uh, these were kind of the godfathers of modern decision science. And this, this prospect theory, this idea that they came up with, um, is kind of the granddaddy of all uh, decision-making theories. It, it launched areas in psychology known as judgment and decision-making, um, behavioral decision-making, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, heuristics and biases. Uh, it launched uh, eventually the um, um, behavioral economics movement, behavioral finance movement. Uh, it all can be stemmed back to this um, this one paper that they wrote, paper, wow. just incredibly influential. That fundamental, actually. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Um, it, it kind of blew up entire schools of thought um, wow. uh, and reorganized them around this idea. I bet the people that so, wrote the previous schools of thought weren't particularly happy. No, and some of them still aren't. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a. It leads to these very sharp divisions. Um, uh, one of them is around this idea of whether people are rational or not. Um, so you've got yeah. some economists still on the rationality side, uh, a lot of psychologists following after Kahneman Tversky on the less than rational side. Um, if you end up at a really boring cocktail party, you might hear an economist and a psychologist argue about this. They still fight. So, um, I mean, just as a, a little bit of a brief aside, how in the hell do they determine what's the right thing then? Or what, what makes this right and other things wrong? Or is, In terms I mean, of rationality? Well, no, in terms of just, we, 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 so I mean, obviously I totally believe in all this stuff. I'm just wondering how people actually then turn around and go, well, this theory is now right, those ones were wrong. Uh, oh, is that right. weight, weight of opinion or is it, because I guess. No, no, no. Um, it's, uh, it's the scientific method. So each of these different theories make different predictions. And then you go out um, and you test those predictions, and when a prediction doesn't hold, then you say, well, the theory can't be right. The problem is that um, when it comes to theories of human behavior, unlike theories of like gravity or something, uh, physical phenomena, um, the data is just extremely messy. Uh, and so it turns out that um, no theory is ever going to be right all the time. Uh, they're all contextual. And so... Yeah. It's harder to reject theories in social science than it is in uh, harder sciences. Yeah, uh, and so, so you have these theories that hang on for a while because they still do good. So, you know, I'm not a rational theory proponent. I've, I've seen too much evidence of the fact that people don't adhere to these rules of rationality. 
but it's still around because it makes some really good predictions that do hold sometimes, yeah. and uh, we can get some very powerful insights from it. So I don't. I, I think the useful approach for science, uh, social science, understanding people, is to think of it more of as a mosaic or a pastiche. We've got all these different theories, and they all have some some value in explaining different things. So sure. um, we can have an entire webinar about that. I can go on and on. I've got opinions, Colin. Listen, mate. I know you can go on and on. I've experienced but that as well. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting question that you raised, right? I mean, how how do we figure out kind of what theories are valid? And I think it's an important one for for business people to understand too, because whether to they with, realize it or not, they are testing theories in everything they do in their business. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of the challenges in business why people don't necessarily uh, the businesses like things that are black and white, and obviously this isn't yeah. just black and white. So. Yeah. Anyway, let's yeah. let's carry on with. Uh, otherwise, we'll we'll we will end up spending the whole of this session on. Oh um, yeah, you you just <laughs> ventured into dangerous territory, uh, attracting one of my hobby horses over to come over and play. Um, we, we might have to change the topic of today's conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we won't. We'll stick with prospect theory. Uh, so three big ideas in prospect theory. Um, today we're going to talk about reference points. Uh, next time we'll talk about diminishing sensitivity. Uh, and then the last one, uh, the third week, we'll talk about uh, loss aversion. So all three of these ideas are, are compressed into this um, prospect theory idea. So the reference point idea is kind of the simplest idea in the world, um, and it makes tons of sense. Um, surprisingly, though, it wasn't incorporated into a lot of the ways that economists thought about decision making. So traditionally, um, a lot of economists assumed that the thing that really drove decision-making was wealth. So if you had a lot of wealth available to you, then that opened up kind of more options for you. If you had a limited amount of wealth, then uh, you evaluated things from that perspective. What Kahneman and Tversky did is they said, it's not wealth overall, it's the reference point that you have. It's where you start from. So this is true of anything that we evaluate. So if, if we want to evaluate how bright the lights are in this room, it's really going to depend on whether you just come outside, come in from outside where it was bright and sunny, or whether you just came into the room from a darkened theater. Right? Same level of light will be evaluated as blindingly bright or, or really, really dim. It depends on your reference point. So what Kahneman-Tversky said is this, this biological um, phenomenon where we, our, our assessments are, are, are dependent on reference points. How heavy is this weight? How hot is this water? Those all depend on your reference point. What's the same with economic phenomena too, marketplace phenomena? How, do, how much money is this? You know, how expensive is this? Um, how, how attractive is our paycheck? Well, all those things depend on our reference point. They could be really good or really bad. It depends on where we're coming from. The Intuitive Customer Podcast is brought to you by Beyond Philosophy. Since 2002, Beyond Philosophy has been helping organizations improve their customer experience through their consulting, training, and research services. Find out more at beyondphilosophy.com. That's beyondphilosophy.com. So, so, and is that reference point looking at things like um, brand as well? or previous experiences. So, yes. I, I don't know, I have a previous experience, therefore I think that if I'm going to be dealing with my cable company 
it's going to be a bad experience because every other bloody one I have has been. Um, uh, uh, and does it look at that as well? Then? It does. So um, in in a couple of different ways. So we're already going to make this more. Your question's already going to make this a little more complicated. Um, right. The way that the typical reference point story would be is that I expect my interaction with my cable company to be terrible because that's my reference point. That's my expectation. You know, because of uh, my own personal experience, because of the um, just the general reputation of cable services as being terrible providers. Um, yeah. That's my reference point. And so that means that if my interaction with the cable company is just mildly positive, then yeah. as my reference point is so low, I might say that was really great. You know, the guy yeah. who showed up at my house had actually showered and smiled, and you know, um, I'm just blown away because my reference point was so low. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So I'm gonna walk you through a couple of my favorite reference point experiments, and then we can talk about the implications of this for customer experience and for business in general. Okay. Uh, so the first one was, yeah, so the first one wasn't actually an experiment. Um, at least it wasn't intended as one. So uh, this was uh, conducted, or this was uh, from the Williams-Sonoma company. So they sell high-end uh, kitchen appliances and cookware. Uh, at the time, this was in the late 1980s, um, it, they sold mostly through catalogs. So they introduced what was one of the very first countertop bread makers on the marketplace. Right? Now, okay. now you can buy these things anywhere, but at the time it was brand new. And they sold a model that was priced at $275, and it didn't sell very well that first year. Um, the next year, they introduced a model that was slightly larger and sold them both. So one was $275, one was $420, um, and it was just a little bit bigger. Very few people bought the larger model but the smaller model more than doubled in sales. Right. Now, it wasn't a controlled experiment. There could be lots of explanations for it, but one of the explanations, the potential explanations is, this is a new thing, this bread maker. We don't know what to make of it. We don't know how much it should, what, what should we compare it to? Well, it's, it's kind of like a toaster, but you know, yeah. different. It's kind of like an oven, but not the right. We just, we don't know how to evaluate it. But you give me two yeah. of these things next to each other, I, suddenly that 275 yeah. seems like a real reasonable price compared to yeah. 420. So, so there's no reference points to begin with. That's right. We need these reference points. We don't have them. And so, so what do we do? We look out uh, around for other reference points. So if you give me a reference point, now suddenly I can evaluate that other thing. Right. So I guess the learning that's coming comes out of that is that particularly if you're coming up with a new product or service that hasn't been seen before, then right. you need to bear that in mind in terms of providing a reference point. So we, we can we can um, come around to advice um, based on these findings at several points during the conversation, but that is exactly one of them. So consider the reference point, whether it's a new offering or whether it's your current offering, um, you know, whether it's a new category or whether it's something where they've got a million competitors, what is your customer's reference point? It might be what the competition is offering, but don't assume that, right? Sometimes sure. customers go into this completely blind, and even though you know exactly what your competitors' prices are and what their service levels are, this may be the your customer's very first experience with this. They might have a completely different reference point. You know, maybe their reference point for cable companies coming out to service their home is plumbers, right? Because that's yeah. what they've experienced. Sure. Um, figure out what the reference point is, 
and then can you influence it? So sure. in this case, if you are introducing the first bread maker, can you introduce two and provide that reference point for people? Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. So if you're, it, it, so the reference point is obviously transportable, if you like, between different services. So you mentioned somebody coming out to your home, that's a sort of, you, I guess internally you're genericizing the fact that, well, yeah, the gas man's coming out to my house, the cable guy's coming out to my house. It's effectively the same thing. So it doesn't have to be exact. You're, you're transposing uh, automatically those two things. Yeah, so if we start with the idea that people most often need a reference point of some kind. Yeah. And often in the marketplace we don't have a reference point. Right? There are lots of things that we evaluate where we don't, we don't know exactly. If, if we combine those two things, then we, we end up with this idea that people are desperately seeking reference points, and they will sure. get as close as they can. So sure. to your point, um, you know, if, you, if you've never had a cable person come out to your house to service your, your box, um, what other things have you had that are similar? Um, sure and can use those as reference points. And so you, you have customers just kind of reaching out into their own experience, into the general reputation uh, out there in the marketplace to get as close as they can, to fake that reference point to the extent that they can. The Intuitive Customer is being brought to you by Beyond Philosophy. Your frontline teams should be trained on how they can practically influence customer decision using some of the psychological techniques discussed in these podcasts. To understand Beyond Philosophy's unique approach to the training of frontline teams, just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash employee training. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash employee training. So, so I'm, I'm now thinking of um, this year is the 10th anniversary of the iPhone. So, with the, and obviously the iPhone was the first smartphone, but I presume that people were, the reference point with that was being normal phones, and therefore look at the difference that I can do with this iPhone is so much more than what I could do with my normal Nokia, whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think that the way that people um, evaluated the iPhone was in terms of their previous cell phone experience. Um, I remember when the iPhone launched, it like shut down the news cycle for two days. Like I, it was like three solid hours on my drive home on NPR of just nothing but iPhone. And they were talking about the screen and the zoom and the, um, and it's because all of those features were new, you know, relative to the phone. But I remember when I bought my first iPhone, I was shocked at how short the battery life was. Yeah, because my reference point was my phone, which I could charge, plug in and charge once a week, um, yeah. and it would just stay. And then my iPhone could only, you know, I forget at the time it was like four hours or something. It was. Yeah. I should have used um, as a reference point my laptop computer for battery yeah. life. This thing yeah. was a tiny little computer, and once I reframed that for myself, I was like, oh well, you know, this yeah. is a decent battery life for a computer. Yeah. Um, so we, we need to be aware of what our customers' reference points are. Could yes. iPhone have come out and said, um, you know, computer in your hand with a battery that'll last, you know, four times as long as your laptop? 
you know, could they have reframed that around? Because that was that was a perennial complaint of smartphones. Um, yeah. We we yeah. are ungrateful jerks of customers. Give us this <laughs> miracle product that is unlike anything in human history. What do we do? We start complaining about the battery life. Um, I, I, a lot of that was referenced. Uh, as a side issue, I remember going into Nokia at the time, about six months after the iPhone was released, and they were going, "Yeah, it's never going to catch on. The battery, uh, the battery's a killer. It doesn't charge." And I'm, I'm going, "Look, yeah, but look what you can do." And you know, blah blah. blah. No, nah, it's never going to catch on. So there yeah. you go. There you Hubris go. from Nokia. There you go. Um, yeah, poor Nokia. Uh, yeah, had better. Um, all right, so let me let me tell you my um, my next favorite reference price experiment. So this is a very simple one. Uh, they took several groups of uh, students at the University of Chicago, and they asked them about some hypothetical dictionaries. This was run back in the days when people still use dictionaries, hardcover books. Um, and they said, here's one dictionary. It has 10,000 entries, and it's in pristine condition, like new. Here's another dictionary. It has 20,000 entries. Um, but the cover's got a small tear on it, so it's it's a little bit defective in terms of appearance. And so they asked these students, how much would you be willing to pay for each of these dictionaries? For the smaller dictionary, people indicated on average uh, $19. For the larger dictionary, uh, they said $27, right? So, so far, so good. It, uh, it makes some sense. People are um, uh, willing to pay more for the larger dictionary, but not twice as much. Yeah. They then took two different groups of people and showed them just one or just the other of the, the dictionary. Excuse me, just sneezing. It's all right. Um, and what they found is that the the um, prices reversed. So people were now willing to pay about four dollars more for the smaller dictionary. All right. Well. So well. and. How because, they have, because they were seeing it by itself. That's right. Yeah. And the reason that that changed things is, how many entries does a typical dictionary have, Colin? Yeah, no, that's the point. Why would you know that? Why would anyone know that, right? So we have this attribute, which, which is really important, right? The, yeah. the number of entries defines the dictionariness of the dictionary, right? That, yeah. that determines how useful it will be. It's yeah clearly the more important attribute, but we can't evaluate it. No. And so instead, we evaluate based on the easy to evaluate attribute, which is, right. is the cover torn or not. Right. Um, so the, this was an experiment run by a guy named Chris Shi uh, at the University of Chicago, and he called this the evaluability hypothesis. Right. The idea is that attributes that are easy to evaluate tend to be, be more important in decision making. So does this go into... So that would imply things like size and how pretty or how sparkly something is or um, that, that, uh, the comfort of something. Uh, so this seat is more comfortable than that seat, so you know, that's an easy thing for me to make a judgment on. Yeah. Did you know that? Yeah, and you see, you see firms responding to this, right? So. A lot of the cosmetic details that shouldn't matter um, can really influence customers' decisions yeah. because they're easy to evaluate. So let me give you a sad example from um, university life. Uh, universities have been criticized for spending lots of money on uh, flashy things, 
So really super nice dorm rooms, really super nice exercise facilities. Uh, there's been kind of a, uh, a boom market in lazy rivers um, at colleges. So LSU has uh, a lazy tubing river in the shape of their logo, the LSU. Um, Texas Tech has one. Ohio State has a 250-person hot tub. Um, these are universities, serious universities, wow. good universities that are spending money on these trivialities. Well, they're they're kind of being rational. They're responding to this idea that it's hard for an incoming student to evaluate the quality of the education that they will get. Right? They don't know for sure what they're going to major in yet. Usually. Yeah. Um, a lot of this depends on the individual professors that they get. They don't know. A lot of their experience depends on uh, the friends that they will make and the networks they will form. It's impossible to evaluate that beforehand. But one thing that's really easy to evaluate is, does this place have a lazy river or not? Right? Does this look like a place that I can go to have don't, fun? Don't go to the university unless it's got a lazy river. Eh? Yeah. And so that is the evaluability hypothesis. Here's this really easy to evaluate attribute. That doesn't matter. It's not important, um, but it affects my choice because it's so easy to evaluate. We're so pleased that you're listening to this episode of The Intuitive Customer. As a listener, we want to offer you a free download of Colin's ebook, Unlocking the Hidden Customer Experience. Take advantage of this free offer being made available only to listeners of this podcast. Do it now. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com podcast and follow the link for the free book. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. It feels like there's some other things happening there as well, like uh, we talked about peak end rule, you know, when you suddenly go, bloody hell, they've got a lazy river. You know, that's something you, re keyword, remember, yeah? Um, and there's also sort of an implied bit of, um, you know, they look after their students so well, they've even spent money on a, on a lazy river and therefore the quality of everything else must be as high as that be because of that. I presume those things are all milling around as well. Yeah, so the, um, uh, the, the experience stuff, the peak end rule stuff um, certainly still applies. You would want to bracket that. So it could be that if, for example, you were a prospective student, you were getting a tour of the campus, you know, maybe they put the lazy river at the end. So that's like their big wow factor so that you end yeah. the experience really well. Um, that absolutely could be going on. The second thing you propose is what's known as uh, signal theory. Uh, and the idea there is that there are certain things that are very difficult for us to evaluate. And so we look for easy to evaluate things that are, are a proxy for that. So almost all of branding depends on signal theory. And right? it, yeah. it's hard for me to look at a car and evaluate how dependable it's going to be. I just, I don't have those skills. I, I wouldn't know where to start. But if it's got the Honda brand name on it, then that's a signal that it's likely to be a dependable car because over time the brand name Honda has become to be associated with dependability. So we've got this easy to identify attribute that uh, serves as a signal for this hard to identify important attribute. The difference so, here is that uh, the difference here is that that's, that's usually supposed to be based on some kind of logic or evidence, the signal yeah. connection. Um, in the case of the, you know, the, the dictionaries, uh, that one I don't think applies because it's not going to be the case that a dictionary with a, a more pristine cover is therefore going to be a more useful dictionary. So I think both of those things apply, 
but uh, yeah. maybe in different scenarios. So the referencing, going back to the so going back to the referencing, I'm now also again thinking about what Apple did for packaging. So one of the things that obviously when you get your Apple phone, you know, you had people videoing the taking off the box and how pristine the packaging looked. And that sort of, that gave them a differentiator. Yeah? Uh, and therefore the reference was, well, previously it came in a box, but it wasn't anywhere near as nice a box as you would yeah. get with the, with the Apple piece, et cetera, et cetera. So I presume therefore they're using that referencing to go look at how much or how different our packaging is to the normal packaging. So that's about just looking at differentiation, I presume. Yeah, I mean, I think that fits in very well with this evaluability hypothesis idea. Um, a lot of design elements are super easy to evaluate, right? You, you may not know just how much better 512 gigabytes is relative to, you know, 200 and and 10, like, I, I don't know how to, it clearly one's better, but just how much better, how much will that affect the performance of the phone, I don't know. But sure. immediately you can tell, oh, this is really well designed, this is beautiful, this is more functional, this does not look like they spent as much time into it. And because yeah. that's so easy to evaluate, you actually, you get this complaint explicitly from non-Apple people, right? That it's just, it's all fluff. It's just, it's, you know, sure. if you look at the specs, it's just so clear that these other products are better, um, but Apple people are just, like, bamboozled by the design. Um, I don't know how fair those criticisms are, but it's undeniably true that design is easier to evaluate. You just, you look yes. at it, and it looks better. Um, yes. And that... And, and it clearly, clearly, as an Apple user with my Apple Watch and my Apple phone and my Apple... Laptop. I'm not influenced by any of that type of stuff. It's just Apple tattoo on your bicep. Not a lot of people know that. That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah you're you're hopelessly biased. We're not going to ask your opinion about this stuff. But, uh, but it, it fits with this idea. Like people need reference points. And so if you're an expert, if you're a tech expert, um, you can evaluate a lot of these components, right? A lot of these uh, technical features of the phone. You're in a, you have reference points to do that. A lot of customers don't. I, I don't. I don't care about that stuff nearly enough. As, uh, uh, and so I don't have great reference points for that stuff. And so I'm looking for other easier ways to make evaluations. So I presume that, and then now I'm going tying different theories together, but I presume that then ties back to rational intuitive that we talked about two or three um, uh, sessions ago and clearly is the sort of the title of this, the book, i.e., the intuitive decision making, the rational decision making. The rational decision making would lead you to make that evaluation and look at what people have written about the specs of things, and uh, therefore those reference points within within there, wouldn't it? I presume. So I think that the reference point thing can inform both the rational and the intuitive. So the the process you describe, I think, is very much a rational decision making price. Uh, process. Let's go out and see what's out there in the marketplace. Let's let's create reference points within ourselves. Let's become informed. That's a rational process that still relies on reference points. Yeah. You can also though, develop intuitive reference points. So when you're evaluating an experience, a lot of times those evaluations aren't articulated. You're not saying, oh, well, 
you know, this was, uh, you know, two minutes faster than it was over here, or um, these guys made me feel four points warmer and fuzzier on a 10-point scale. Um, all of those are intuitive evaluations, but they're still, you still have a reference point there, um, even if it's kind of buried deep down inside. Yes. Um, so I think that, it, that reference points can be useful in um, expanding on this rational versus intuitive distinction. Uh, because both both systems, I think, use use reference points maybe in different ways. Yeah, and I guess the intuitive system, by definition, you're being influenced by it without necessarily calling calling upon it, as it were. You're calling upon it, but you don't realize you're calling upon it. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things that the intuitive system is good at doing is um, is kind of noting incidences. So just yeah. kind of tracking things. So how often am I seeing this thing? And those yeah. those can inform our reference points. So if you if you think about uh, the way that we form stereotypes, a lot of that is very intuitive and, and automatic, and that's just our our intuitive system yeah. kind of keeping track of what we're seeing in the world and um, and kind of putting things together and then being informed by stories that we hear and uh, other things that are going on. But those become reference points. Those become ways of evaluating things. So so we've Got a couple of minutes left, so I, I'm, I'm taking I'm taking from this that the key, some of the key questions from a sort of a customer experience perspective or product perspective is what is your what reference are you giving? I.e., the bread maker. Uh, you know, if you're coming up with a completely new product, then you should be putting in some form of reference. But as most products aren't new, they're just sort of Iterations of others, or copies of others, or uh, you know, um, um, evolution of, of products. Recognizing where that reference point uh, exists with, within that, um, but it also feels like that um, uh, the references when and the conversation we were having about the gas van comes out, the cable guy comes out. That those reference points could be cross industry. Or even Absolutely. the difference between business and personal, I suppose. You know, I'm getting on Amazon, but now I'm in a B2B situation, business to business situation, and I can't access this website. Why can't they be as simple as uh, Amazon are or whatever? Yeah. I mean, when you think about the, um, always hesitant around political examples, but when you think about um, when President Obama was pushing the, um, uh, the Obamacare website exchanges, he explicitly gave people the reference point of Amazon and, and Hotwire and some of these. You know, he said you can go on to these sites and compare options or that's what we're going to give you. Yeah, you know, that was providing people the reference point. And when yeah. when the um, system came online and, and was not that smooth and easy, um, I think part of the reason that people evaluated it so poorly is because, you know, they were told it would be like Amazon instead of be, being told it would be yeah. like IRS.gov. If they'd yes. been told, well, this is going to be like the, you know, the the IRS site, um, and then they had come out with exactly the same thing. People might have said, oh, this is great. This is this is so much better than we were expecting. So, so yeah. So, so in terms of advice, yeah, what are your customers' reference points? Don't assume yeah. they're the same as yours. Figure no. it out, and then what sure. can you do to influence or change them? Sure. Provide. Yeah, no, sounds good. All right. Well, uh, thanks very much. Um, Everybody, thank you, um, Professor Hamilton, Ryan, um, uh, and um, so thanks very much for your time. This has been the Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. 
But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. <laughs>